Lovely. Hello. It's been a couple of years since I've been here. How are you all doing? We're all right. It's nice to see you. I've had a good time with your students, who were just a rowdy crew just there. Um, but James said earlier that, it, what, did you, what was your summary of the weekend? Inoffensive and quite a nice time or something. Um, I, I just want to uh, just say, rest of the church, your students are dynamite. They're brilliant. And um, they've gone really deep with the Father this weekend. And uh, the way they've responded and surrendered to Jesus, even before anybody said anything, uh, and the way they've spontaneously worshipped and prophesied and prayed for each other, uh, has been brilliant and remarkable. And um, just so you know, um, in Scripture, young believers can in fact set an example for everybody else in speech and love and faith in life in purity. And so I just say to the rest of the family, pay attention to your students. Call out the best in them that they may set an example in speech, in love, in faith, in life, in purity. Uh, and I'd say to you lot, live up to that. Live up to what you live for. And don't forget how far we've travelled even in the weekend. Tonight I want to talk to you about authenticity and what it might mean and look like to have an authentic faith. And um, when I was thinking about this question... Uh, I was thinking about possibly the kind of questions that I'd want to ask to, to try and discover uh, whether somebody has an authentic faith. And of course, uh, so as not to have a plank in my own eye, what does it really mean for me to have an authentic faith with Jesus? Because the word authentic is quite trendy at the moment. The hipster culture has brought it back with a vengeance. And uh, we want original and genuine and, uh, you know, a little bit vintage because it's off of the past and it's real and it's not this cheap manufactured fake stuff. It's real. And what does it mean to be a real Christian? How would that look? How would that sound? What difference would it make in the world? I was thinking of questions like, well, you know, do, do you love Jesus? That's quite a key one if you're going to find out whether they're authentically a Christian. D do you love Jesus? Do you remind me of Jesus in how you live? Do I remind you of Jesus in how I live? Do our lives live louder than our words sound? What I preach, does my life shout louder of the kingdom of God, seem more like scripture than what I teach from the Bible? Have you been through suffering? I'd say that's a hallmark of being a disciple of Jesus. Do you have a limp as you walk because of what you're going through for the glory of God? Do you tell anyone else about the love of God? Are you a good news person? Are you ready? Do you take, the mo uh, take every opportunity and is your conversation seasoned with the salt of the gospel? What does your bank balance look like? How are you doing physically, emotionally? Who's around your dinner table? Actually, when you start to think, what does it mean to be an authentic follower of Jesus? It's got a challenge, but it's got to look like something. If you've got your Bible with you, uh, it'll be on the screen as well, but you might want to turn and follow in Matthew 9. Because there's a story in here that we're going to look at tonight that uh, actually... I want to reframe a little bit about what I think authentic faith looks like and what it means. And um, I, c I couldn't ignore this theme when I looked at Matthew 9. Just, just to let you know what's happened just before this, because it's kind of important. Um, Jesus has just done something a little bit outrageous. Um, 
unlike the student weekend away, which is apparently inoffensive, what Jesus has just done leading up to Matthew 9, verse 9, is highly offensive. Uh, Jesus was in a situation with a paralyzed man, and uh, Jesus chose to, quite publicly, in front of the religious leaders known as the Pharisees, chose to forgive the man's sins, uh, which was something in that society everybody knew only God could do. So Jesus has essentially just outed himself as God on earth, and it hasn't gone down well. So when people start to complain, hold on, son, only God can do that, Jesus goes one step further, heals the guy to such an extent he gets up, takes up his mat, and walks himself home. So Jesus has just caused a stir. A crowd is following him because they've got good reason to, because he has made them pay attention and say, there is something different about this guy. And they begin to praise God as they realize they may have just experienced something of the presence of God in their midst. Straight after that, Jesus is wandering along and then we see him call Matthew. Matthew, the tax collector, and he says, actually, I want you to follow me. And uh, it's the same Matthew that's traditionally believed to be the author of this book. And this is what the account says. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have come to call, uh, not to call the righteous, but sinners. So tonight, in order to look at what it means to have an authentic faith, I want us to look at the, uh, the subject, the theme, the idea, the pretty vital uh, life mandate that is holiness. I basically can't actually touch this passage. I can't authentically teach it to you if I don't tell you about the holiness of God and the transformative effect the holiness of God has in his people that means you can actually authentically live a real life faith. But I'm aware that holiness as a, as a, as a theme isn't going to be a crowd pleaser. In fact, um, myself and some of my team got a bit addicted to the idea of really understanding holiness over the last year. And um, I remember telling one church leader friend that we just keep talking on it. Like, we can't avoid it. It keeps coming up, keep wanting to speak about it. And... Uh, she said, can't you use another word? Because holiness, ah, oh, that word, it's just got so much baggage. So authenticity, we're all right with that. In fact, we'd like to label the things that we wear authentic. But holy, ah, that's a little bit more uncomfortable to carry that label. Why is that? In fact, if I were to look you in the eye and ask you, how are you doing at being holy? What would you say? What are you currently feeling? How quickly would it take you to drop eye contact and change the subject? How awkward is that question? How are you doing at being holy, P's and G's? Perhaps it's got a similar effect to um, walking past a police officer and automatically feeling guilty, even though you're not entirely sure why. I get that all the time. 
I, which is odd, I know, but I'm kind of walking past and then I just think I won't make eye contact just in case I look dodgy. And I look down, I'm wearing high top trainers, I've got a hood on my jumper. Oh my goodness, what have I unwittingly done? I must have committed a crime. I definitely look like a shoplifter. I just, my head goes there. I feel guilty. To be fair, when I was two, a very middle class crime, I stole some Werther's originals. In a newsagent's buggy height was lower shelf height, I robbed them, stuck them in the back of my buggy, went home, shared them with my brother, he finished eating them, then he told on me. Unbelievable. <laughs> Unbelievable. Uh, if truth be told, this Bible is stolen. I'm not actually joking. Nicked it from HTB's toilet seven years ago. <laughs> I went to a student alpha training event. They were giving out free Bibles. I didn't get one. Some poor girl left hers in the loo. I took it. I thought, that's a waste of a good Bible. I don't know where she's coming back. I'll have that. It's awkward, but it's true. That's stolen property. I've committed a crime. I'll do my time. What have I unwittingly done? I just feel a little bit awkward and a little bit guilty because I'm pretty sure I'm not living up to it. I'm probably not doing a good job at the holiness thing. And then there's all the stuff that I haven't done. Like my quiet times are noisy. My prayer life is sporadic. I'm not on any rotors at church. You know, oh my goodness. Either way, I'm failing. Either way, ask me how I'm doing at being holy and I bow out, I duck out. Even though God calls his people from Leviticus 19 onwards, he says to us, be holy as I am holy. He hasn't retracted that call. What it must mean to authentically follow him has got to be wrapped up in this holiness gig, yet why are we so uncomfortable about it? What does it really mean? Is that what Jesus lived? Is he honestly setting us up for a fall time and time again? And to be an authentic Christian, does it actually mean, I know I'm a dirty, rotten sinner not doing a good job? Really? That's life in all its fullness? Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. I've got a friend called Calvin, who's the best-dressed man I know, but he's also a theologian. And he has a very helpful analogy for understanding holiness, which, when I first heard it, I thought, that'll preach. That's so helpful for me trying to work this out in the everyday. So I've been sharing it anywhere I can. And it will help us make much more sense of Matthew 9 when you hear it too. So, let me tell you, this picture that Calvin gives us involves the wearing of white trousers, okay? Follow me here. Now, when you look at holiness throughout Scripture, you'll see that it crops up right from, uh, back in the day, Old Testament. So, this isn't a new concept by the time we, uh, we get to Matthew, okay? In the Old Testament, there's a whole bunch of teaching on holiness. It was a very big deal, and people knew about it. One of the ways in which holiness was taught was the idea of it being a separateness, set apart, um, separate from God, set, set apart for God, and set apart from uh, the world or anything unholy. So a set apartness was part of what it meant. It needed, if something was holy, it needed to be treated with respect, it needed to be treated differently. If something was holy, you couldn't just access it without a series of maybe cleansing rituals, or um, when the holiness of God camped amongst the people, there, everyone had to keep a wide berth around where the holiness of God was. So if you view holiness like this, it would be that holiness is a pair of white trousers or a dazzlingly white crisp shirt. If holiness is something that needs to be remained, uh, kept separate, to remain pure, to remain holy, that would be the equivalent of you wearing white trousers or wearing a white shirt but making sure you don't sit down anywhere. 
You're not going to uh, cook spaghetti bolognese anywhere near what you're wearing. You can't sit down on any sort of public transport. You, uh, for me, I probably can't use a biro because I just I'll get in trouble. I just know I will, right? Uh, if holiness is something that's separate and set apart, you can wear it out in public, but be careful what you eat, where you sit, who you hang out with, what you, where you go and what you do, because you've got to keep your whites white, right? This would be like the Pharisees. This would, ha- this would uh, in very simply summarize how they see holiness. Now, the thing is, because it's holy, it's also kind of glorious. So you want to be seen. You don't want to absolutely hide away the whiteness, like another group of people called the Essenes. We won't go into them, but they kind of went way, way away. The Pharisees thought, be holy in the world, but don't touch the world. Be seen to be holy, but don't go near them in case they mess up your trousers. Don't eat that in case that messes up your crisp white shirt. So the Pharisees would walk around town but look remarkably different and they couldn't just eat with anyone, chat with anyone or associate in certain ways and they had plenty of cleansing rituals to make sure they kept white. Is that authentic faith? Is that what it means to be a Christian? Keep your whites white. But there's another way. So... Throughout scripture as well, holiness can also be seen as a transformative, contagious power. So rather than in the Old Testament times when you see the holy of holies, the set-apart nature of the presence of God, you also get examples where the presence of God shows up and transforms the space that it's in. Think Moses in the burning bush, for example. Moses rocks up, God says, take your shoes off, you're on holy ground. It is not because the dirt is holy, it's because the presence of God has shown up and made everywhere it touches holy. Think Moses later on, Exodus 34, and his face. Moses meets with the presence of God. When he comes back to camp, everyone freaks out because his face is shining because he's been communing with the presence of God and the holiness has rubbed off on him to such an extent he actually needs to veil his face. He needs to cover it up because everyone's like, I can't see, I can't look at you, I'm freaking out. Too holy. Holiness can be contagious and transformative. Remember, the presence of God also shows up like fire and pillars of cloud and smoke and booming voices. There is something dangerous about it. It can't just be tamed. It can't just be domesticated. You've got to be careful when you touch holiness because it is going to have an effect. If you view holiness like this, rather than holiness being the white trousers that you need to protect from a dirty world, holiness would be seen like bleach, the bleach that made the trousers white in the first place. In that case, holiness as a transformative power means it works best when it's put on a dirty world, when it's spilled out over things that need to be made clean. There's a reason why we lock bleach away in the top cupboard, because if that splashes on black trousers, you've ruined your clothes. But the genius of this transformative presence of God is that it isn't in survival mode. It isn't hoping that it doesn't get messed up. It deliberately gets around where it's needed most. It deliberately is activated in the world where it hasn't been bleached already. You see it most strongly where things need to be made holy. That's when the Holy Spirit is put to work. Enter the Jesus way. Jesus walked around and wasn't worried about himself getting dirty, messed up, or backsliding in the big, scary world. Jesus rocked up in power and starts praying for sick people who would have been considered unholy and cursed. 
you can see now why Jesus and the Pharisees start falling out. Because both groups, the, the Jesus way and his followers and the Pharisees, they both take holiness really seriously. What you can't do is write off the Pharisees as being so wrong they've missed the point. They took the scripture very seriously. Be holy as I am holy. But their definition of it, Jesus turns upside down and makes a radical new statement about the holiness of God. Less about the white trousers, more about the bleach that made it white in the first place. So now jump back to Matthew 9 and put on the lenses of trying to see what holiness might have to do with this. Because as soon as you read this account you, with the view of holiness, you start to realize it is electric with tension, conflict, and a radical new way of living. What Jesus means by real, living, authentic faith, we see worked out here, and it has everything to do with holiness. So we're in Matthew 9, and Jesus is choosing to eat with a whole bunch of people considered unholy and considered sinners. So first of all, Matthew, as a tax collector, is one of the most hated members of society. The way he got his wages was not only did he have to charge his own people taxes, but he would then up the taxes and cream off the top for his own wages. So he's crooked. He is a collaborator with the very oppressive and brutal Roman government, and he's swindling his own people. Tax collectors are like the lowest of the low, but they get a bit of money for it, so they do it anyway. He's hated. Of course, this is exactly the kind of guy the Pharisees are going to go absolutely nowhere near. They're going to walk right the way past him in their white Pharisee skinny jeans, and they're not going to let Matthew touch them because they do not want to be associated with the scum of the earth. And Jesus walks straight up to Matthew, looks him in the eye, and says, follow me. Be known by who I am. Come be my disciple. But it gets more outrageous. Because in Matthew 9, what Jesus doesn't do is just make eye contact with the guy no one will look at. He doesn't just say, come and be a student with me. Jesus then invites himself round to Matthew's house for dinner. And that is the most offensive thing of all, and that should make us pay attention to what it might mean to live out this faith today, right? See, back in the day, off of Jesus' society, who you ate with was a big deal. It wasn't just because it was to do with hospitality. Who you ate with, your mealtimes, were a prophetic statement about who you think God is and what you think the kingdom of God, heaven, will be like. Who you eat with says, the people that I'm sat on this table with are people I'm friends with, I have unity with, and they're the people that I think God is going to accept into eternity. So for the Pharisees, it's really important for them that they eat holy food with holy people, that everything is pure, and that, that those that they eat with, they have deemed acceptable to God. Which is why you'll notice time and again in Scripture, they have a real problem with who Jesus eats with and, and how he does that with his followers. So for Jesus to choose to have a dinner party with tax collectors, but we see elsewhere prostitutes, you've got teenagers smelling a fish, you've got children rocking around, you've got women all over the place, you've got lepers, you've got those with diseases, and Jesus keeps on eating with them, sitting at the table with them. Jesus is declaring, you are loved by God too. 
You are accepted into the kingdom of God. If, if this is a prophetic sign, as it would have been taken as back in the day, Jesus is saying, this is what my father's house looks like. And the doors just got blown wide open for what it means to be my follower and to be accepted by God. That is holiness as a transformative power. And you see it work on Matthew. You'll notice straight away, Matthew leaves his livelihood and his wealth to follow a penniless rabbi. Secondly, after Jesus is ate with Matthew and his mates, you'll see following on from that, Jesus then sends out his first missionaries, his 12 disciples, ahead of him into towns and cities. And he says to them, don't take anything with you and receive hospitality when you get there. Pray for the sick, raise the dead, tell them the kingdom of God is near. It's that commissioning of his followers. Matthew is in that 12. Matthew is sent out. The Matthew that's just hosted Jesus for a dinner party then becomes the stranger that gets hosted by many other dinner parties. This sin gets contagious. Matthew's sharing the good news with nothing in his hands but everything in his heart and suddenly he's around the table of other people saying, you can know God too. You can be loved by God too. Holiness just got contagious. You see why Matthew 9 is this incredibly tense drama, a huge prophetic statement. This is what it means to live a real life with the living God who says, come sit at my table. You are all welcome. Anyone can be accepted. But the holiness of God, watch out, because it will transform you. You won't taint me I will transform you. Remarkable difference. This is why I love holiness. This is why I love exploring what it means to be an authentic, living, breathing ambassador of Christ. Because I don't think you can get away from the teaching and reality of holiness when you look into it. One of the things that my team and I pray about is what it would actually look like if revival happened amongst students, amongst this generation in this nation. Because quite often we like to pray the word, but um, if God can do immeasurably more than all we ask and imagine according to his power that is at work within us, I need to try and ask and imagine so that he can do immeasurably more. I need to try and at least work out what that might look like to help my prayers and also so I can hold into account to do more than that, right? And... Um, when we pray and think about what would a move of God look like, we can't get away from the idea that it's going to be thousands of us, everyday normal radicals, courageously following Jesus and contagiously living holy. Real, authentic, nitty-gritty, feet on the ground, God in our hearts, holiness. But like... The kind of holiness that's so normal, it's everywhere, so grassroots, it's got in every sphere of influence and every halls of residence, and yet is revolutionary. Like sharing all your possessions so there's absolutely no need amongst this, amongst this whole community, amongst this city. Holiness. Leading in business, paying your taxes, honoring your bosses kind of holiness. The kind of holiness that spills out in the way you speak and the way you live, the way you prophesy in everyday conversation, the way you pray with people that you've just met or have known for 20 years. Holiness that only works in community because the call of God to be holy was always to a people, not to a person. So this thing has always been worked out together as a family. The kind of holiness that gets addictive the more you live it because you can see and feel the transformation inward, outward and everything around you. 
We can think again if we thought holiness was some kind of standard that we had to try and live up to and literally just keep failing. Think again if we thought holiness was boring or self-righteous or pious. We can throw away our questions of how much can I get away with and still be saved because Jesus has completely changed the question. It's like, how free can you get? How real can you live? How alive can you be? It completely changes the question. We don't need to try and get clean whilst feeling like we're covered in dirt and feeling like we're failing. No longer do we sing holiness on a Sunday but then live lukewarm on a Monday. Instead, we do what we're called to do, which is fix our eyes on Jesus. But as we fix our eyes on Jesus, we find in his presence we are being made holy. We are being transformed by the Holy Spirit. And it can't help but go viral. Be holy because I am holy. Holiness um, as a life posture and a way of walking out the door, I kind of, it really caught my attention around how we were praying over summer. So part of what Fusion does is something called Student Link Up, where we literally link young people to new local churches when they leave home so that they don't drop off in that big drop-off gap, which happens in major transitions, particularly in young people, right? So we bridge the gap, introduce them to new family, prepare, help the church prepare them for university culture, and we hope that they hit the ground running um, and, and find home fast, right? But every summer, we get to meet lots of young people and lots of church leaders, youth workers, and parents, and they all ask us to pray for the same thing. To be honest, they're all slightly nervous, scared even. Some of them burst into tears with us when we stand uh, with them at New Wine or wherever, and they just come up, and they're so thankful that we exist, but so afraid of what might happen. And uh, their prayer is, I would just really want them to meet a nice group of Christians, live in a nice Christian house, have a nice Christian church, and then they'll be safe. And I totally understand that prayer. Because it is devastating when you see your kid not walk with Jesus at uni after raising them to know him. And it cuts you to the core, I get that. But when I've been looking into holiness as a transformative power, I suddenly realise we're praying way too small for our generation, way too small for our young people. Because to think that the prayer is, I just hope their faith survives the university, misses the point of who the Holy Spirit is and what his role is in your heart and in your life. See, holiness isn't worried that it's going to survive in a, in a dark and dirty university world. Holiness should make the campus tremble because the presence of God just showed up. And it is in a transformative temple. It is in the body of Christ, in thousands of students that show up to love outwards, to share Jesus with their housemates, to invite people to come home. I mean, my word, universities should be afraid of holiness. Holiness shouldn't be afraid of university. Our prayers are too small sometimes. We hope we survive in a nice Christian bubble, but that is actually a contradiction in terms because holiness works best when from community it's sent out in community to the world that needs to be covered in the bleach of the good news of God. I wonder how you're praying. I wonder how you posture your life. How do you walk down the street as an authentic, living, breathing house of the Holy Spirit? Might this change the way you walk, knowing what you carry, knowing what it's there for, and seeing how Jesus chose to live and breathe 
and share this thing outwards. In the Jesus holiness movement, a holy huddle can't exist. Jesus knew you sent a doctor to sick people. You don't keep all the consultants together in a pristine ward, sat around talking about medicine. Jesus fills his church with the Holy Spirit in order that we be sent out. We see that echo time and time again. Just check out Pentecost, check out the early church in Acts. You see we were filled for a purpose. You can spot the genuine article when you're actually surrounded by cheap fakes. You can spot a light bulb most easily when it's not in a room of other light bulbs, but it's in somewhere that needs to be lit up. You can spot the Christian more easily when you're outside the church walls in the comfortable, nice people church culture, into spaces where authentic Jesus followers actually have to be uncompromising with their holy culture in the face of what the world's doing and speak up for the oppressed and honor the person that's being badmouthed behind their back. That's when you start to spot the Christian. You spot authentic faith when you're actually going through hard stuff where faith is really required. Holiness is part of the mission of God. That's why I love it. And that's why we need it. Because I don't know whether you've noticed, but I think we're getting sick in our culture and of our culture. Consumerism is killing us. Generations are getting disillusioned very quickly when they speak up at the moment. Comparison is robbing our joy. Distraction is everywhere. We're more connected than ever and yet more lonely than ever. We are plagued by mental health issues. We've no idea what to do with our future because we've been set up to do whatever we want and live our dreams and yet there is nothing available in practice. Our culture, we're breathing in this carbon monoxide and we're not doing well on it. You don't need to be a Christian to realize that society's sick. Look around you and the cracks are showing. What we don't need in this situation is lukewarm Christianity. What we don't need is half-committed, popping on a Sunday but not really living it on a Monday. What we don't need is more polite, nice, kind, sensible Christians. What we need is dangerously alive Christians, full of the real living presence of God, living outwards with a transformative view of what the Holy Spirit does in your heart and in the world. We cannot play it safe in these times because society isn't safe. And the only one that can do anything about that, we carry within us because of who Jesus is and because of how present he is today. Be holy because I am holy.